All right, well, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with us to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. If you are new tonight, just as a reminder of kind of how this thing will be structured, we have a period of teaching that goes for about the next 50 minutes, and then we have a brief break, and then around the tables we will have a time of discussion that's going to be based on questions that comes from the passage that we're working through in the next few minutes. And I've really enjoyed that part of the evening uh, where we get to discuss these things with the people around us. Seems like we say the same thing each week. That what a fantastic passage, and it sure is. And uh, it starts great and ends even greater. And really appreciate y'all being here today. Greg, you want to read for us? Um, starting in 16 and going to 3, maybe 3, 4 for starters and praying. Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 16. It says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings? These indeed, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God." When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. All right, let's pray. Our Father, we are so thankful to study your word. Your word is life. It is a lamp to our feet. It is a light to our path. Uh, Your word revives our souls. It renews us. It strengthens us. It teaches us. It instructs us. It guards us. It warns us. And Lord, tonight as we consider some of these Uh, the elements of the false teaching that the Colossian church was facing. Lord, please help us up here to be very clear as we explain these things and apply these things, Lord, for our own good and our own benefit, Lord, that we might be on guard uh, against temptations um, to turn away from you. And sometimes, Lord, we, we need extra help because these temptations to turn away don't look like temptations. They actually look like good, helpful, spiritual spirituality. Uh, It seems like it might be good for the Christian life, but Lord, help us not be deceived. Help us not be fooled. Lord, so give us wisdom tonight as we study your word and help us, as Paul tells us, to set our minds on the things that are above where Christ is and not on the things that are of this earth. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Greg, thank you. Mark, would you say this about as difficult of a passage maybe as Colossians uh, offers, it's, it's tricky. Yeah, it, it's a little bit like hearing, you know, you've heard the analogy, if you're, if you're listening to a family member talk on the phone, 
and you kind of know who they're talking to, but you don't exactly know what they're talking about. You have this experience, and you're, you, know, you're not, you don't want to act like you're eavesdropping, but you can't help but hear it, and you're kind of trying to figure out what exactly are they saying, and you just, you just hear half the conversation. Well, with Paul's letters, that's what we always hear. We hear half of a phone call. Paul is talking to the Corinthians or the Colossians or the Galatians, and then they're responding in different ways. We don't have exactly what they said. We have fragments of what they said and believed based on what Paul tells us, but trying to piece together precisely what the Colossian false teachers were saying can be tricky. If you, you know, this outline, we've got an outline here uh, for tonight, uh, which is pretty simple. A lot of people used almost this identical outline, so this is nothing new from us. But uh, you can just see here's three simple words to put the passage together for the end of chapter 2. Legalism for verses 16 and 17. Mysticism for verses 18 and 19. And asceticism, which we'll talk about in verses 20 uh, through 23. Good. Scott? Yeah, should we just jump in? At the beginning of this first point, the legalism right there, that word therefore at the beginning of, of 16, I, I think is huge. It's pointing back, one pastor said it's pointing back to verses 8 to 15. In light, of, in light of who Christ is, the fullness of deity dwells in Christ. In light of the fact that we, we have been raised with Christ, uh, our sins have been forgiven in Christ. In, in light of those things, now, uh, therefore, live a certain way. And he says, uh, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And likely, uh, what they're pushing here is uh, Old Testament dietary laws and uh, Old Testament calendar. Like, is diet and days is what people have said. And basically, Paul is saying, uh, don't add to Jesus, essentially. They're saying, you want the higher life. You need Jesus plus these things. Well, that, don't do that. Don't, don't drift away from Jesus. But then he, he says the shadow. They're, they're a shadow of the things to come, which I think that's what gives us a clue that what, what these things are. And lots of people gave illustrations about this, but my favorite one comes from a pastor. I've shared this before when we went through Hebrews, but it was such a good illustration about the idea of shadow in the Old Testament and the substance is Christ. And he, he told the story of, of a mom with, with a young child at a grocery store, maybe a three-year-old or four-year-old boy, holding this boy's hand, and they're walking down the cereal aisle, they're looking for cereal, and they find cereal, but then the boy maybe gets distracted, our son Michael gets distracted with toys hanging there, and he runs over, sees a toy, oh, I want this toy, he's fixated on the toy, and then he seems like just a few seconds, but then he turns around, and his mom is gone, there's just cereal this way, and there's just cereal that way, his mom is not there, he begins to panic, he gets like a knot in the throat, tears start to form in his eyes, where is my mom, and he races down, his little legs race down the end of the aisle, and he sees on the floor a shadow that looks just like his mom. It fills him with hope. And then his mother comes around the corner and he embraces his mother. He doesn't go on the floor. He doesn't embrace the shadow on the floor. No, he embraces Christ. And that's the idea. These are shadows. Like the Passover, it's a shadow pointing forward to Jesus. Don't cling to the shadow. Cling to Jesus. I think that's a helpful way just to begin there on, on the, this first point. Yeah, Mark? Yeah, no, that's really helpful. You can see here the, the list in, the, in verse 16. It talks about... A festival, a new moon, or a Sabbath. And if you look on the screen, 2 Chronicles 8.13, you can see here the same breakdown from the Old Testament. You've got the Sabbaths, you've got, which were once a week. You've got the new moons, which was once a month, basically. And then the three annual feasts. And you've got here Passover, uh, which is the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks, which is called Pentecost, and the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles. But you had three annual feasts, and then you had the monthly new moon feast, and then you had the weekly Sabbath so yearly, monthly, uh, weekly, and you can clearly see Paul is thinking of the same thing when he says here uh, in verse 16, with regard to a festival, that'd be the yearly feast, a new moon, the monthly, and the Sabbath, which is the weekly. And I, I think this has big implications for us regarding how we understand Sabbath law today. 
Greg, do you want to take a, take a shot at that? I mean, the, the, the idea that are Christians under the Sabbatarian law of the Old Testament, it's a, it's a controversial issue, but... It is controversial, but I think the New Testament is very clear in showing us that everything in the Old Testament, all the, the days, the feasts, the, the sacrifices, all of that was a shadow pointing forward to Christ. Um, and so, you know, there are some well-meaning Baptists who almost want to talk about Sunday as a Christian Sabbath. Um, I understand where they get that, but I just can't go there with them simply because of how the New Testament talks about the Sabbath. Um, we, we are looking forward to a, a Sabbath rest that is yet to come. Hebrews talks about that. And in Christ, we are already experiencing God's Sabbath, God's rest. And so everything in the Old Testament, especially even the Sabbath, which is this God-ordained day of rest for his people, like, and we think, but we could be more productive. We could get so much more done if we just had one more day to do it. And God said, you are not to work on that day. You are to rest. Um, and so, but that's pointing forward to the fact that one day all our striving, all our working will be done um, in terms of this world and trying to, to live for God in a hostile world and everything like that. One day all that working will be done and we will have rest forever in the presence of God. That doesn't mean we're going to be lazy. There's still going to be work in the new heavens and the new earth, but it's going to be fundamentally different because there's not going to be sin. We're not going to be cursed by sin. We're not going to have the effects of sin on us uh, like, like all of humanity since Adam sinned has been. And so it's going to be fundamentally different. And so, you know, the Sabbath was, was God saying, take a break and trust me. Um, you're, you can miss a day of work and you'll be okay. Um, and so we don't have to keep that because it's been fulfilled in Christ. Um, the rest that we need, what we have in Jesus is far greater than any day of rest could ever give us. Um, and just, just a, a reference to that, if you can turn to Romans 14 just for a second. Romans chapter 14, I think you're dealing with not an identical issue, but similar dispute goes on here. And if you look at Romans 14, you deal with uh, people who have different uh, thoughts about, I think Sabbath is one of the issues he's talking about here. Look at Romans 14, verse 5. And Paul says, One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day, which would probably be Sabbath is one of the main things mm -hmm. he's thinking of. The one who observes the day, who observes the Sabbath, observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. So you see here again, if my conscience is bound to say, no, I have to, I cannot mow my lawn on Sunday because that is violation of the Sabbath. If that's what I feel in my own conscience, Paul would say, then don't violate your conscience. Follow, if, if in your conscience going to a restaurant on Sunday is sinful, then for you, it is sinful. Because to violate conscience is not, is not the right thing to do. So even if my conscience is stronger than the Bible asks it to be, I still should not violate it. And, and I, instead, Paul would say, work on the doctrine, see the freedom that we have, and also see the, re, the, the true restrictions we have in Christ, and then allow your conscience to be shaped by God's word. But don't violate God's word. Uh, you know, if someone says, going into a movie theater, I just feel is wrong no matter what I'm going to see. Well, then for you, it is wrong, even if it's not wrong for someone else. So we, we have to be very careful not to violate our own personal conscience, but also in disputable issues, like Paul says, let each person be fully convinced in his own mind. He doesn't mean that when he says, you, know, it's, you, don't, you don't have to be fully convinced about murder and adultery or lying or dishonoring God. You, you, 
th- those are true no matter what. But on these disputed matters where our consciences are in different places, Paul says, you've got to follow your conscience. And you, you, need, you, need to, you need to do what you're fully convinced of in your mind. Can I pick up one more thing, kind of draw on something from, from what you said, Scott? Um, we, we can't judge other believers on these issues. Like, we can't think, you know, the, the problem was, they, you see this in the, the Church of Galatia, you see it here, you know, yeah, you might be a Christian, yeah, you might love Jesus, but you're missing out on something if you don't keep these extra regulations and you don't keep these days and these food laws. And it's like, no, you're not. Because that's the whole argument of the book of Colossians. You haven't missed out on anything if you have Christ. You have everything you need. That's why he says there in uh, verse 17, the substance belongs to Jesus. The substance belongs to Christ. You have everything you need from God to walk with God, to be right with God, and to maintain your relationship with God. You have all of that in Jesus. There's nothing outside of that that you're missing out on. And so the issue is, in light of what Mark was saying, it's like, if, especially for, for people who come out of a Jewish background, mm-hmm. if they want to keep these in terms of their tradition um, and because that's what they're used to, that's fine. They can do that. They're not sinning. They're not dishonoring Christ because they're trusting in Jesus. The problem arises when they start to impose their personal observances on these things on other Christians and say, you can't be faithful to God unless you're doing this too. And that was the problem. That was the, the, the issue in Galatia. That's the issue here. It's like, look, if you keep these things, okay. Number one, remember, they don't earn you anything with God. They don't earn you anything. All your righteousness is in Christ. Number two, if you keep them with the right perspective, enjoy it, make the most of it, but you cannot impose that on any other believer or look down on any other believer because they're not keeping it too. Yeah, why is legalism tempt? And maybe not just keeping the Sabbath, but something else. Yeah, because I mean, there's still a danger of that. Yes, legalism is. Uh, there's different ways to define legalism that are all legitimate. So the the most basic definition of legalism is trying to earn your acceptance before God by doing good deeds. That's the most obvious form of legalism. By my righteousness, I will stand justified before God. That is a false religion. It is Pharisaism. It is not biblical. But there's another version of legalism that's still biblical. It's still in the Bible, and it's still dangerous, but it's something we would be more prone to in a room like this than just a bold-faced... Most of us in the room are probably not going to say, I'm going to earn my salvation. But here's a temptation that we will fall into at times, which is taking what God says, and we, we must obey God's commands. We, we must. We, we, we have... We absolutely must obey God's commands. But there is always a temptation to want to almost safeguard God's commands by adding our commands to God's commands to make God's commands less likely to be broken. Like putting up a fence 10 feet in front of the commandment and say, not only am I not going to go to where I'm not supposed to go, I'm going to put a fence 10 feet out so that I'm, I'm really not going to get close to it. And there may be wisdom in that for you personally, right? If, if you've got an alcohol struggle in your family and you've even been prone to alcohol abuse, then you're probably going to have to add extra precautions in your life regarding alcohol that another Christian may not have to have. So it might be a personal legalism for you. I don't like using the word that way, but it might be an extra guard you put up for yourself to protect yourself that you might even need. But to, to enforce that extra rule on everyone else would then be when you're stepping beyond the bounds. Uh, it's kind of like Eve in the garden saying, not only can we not eat from this tree, we can't even touch it lest we die. Well, God didn't say you can't touch it. Eve had added something there to God's word. So, so we, we need to be very careful that we not add things to God's word that he did not really say and then make that a judge for every other Christian that we come in contact with. 
And I think there's a real danger here where, where there needs to be some flexibility on issues where, the, where God does not speak explicitly. Uh, I mean, j- just to give a ridiculous one, since you know, we're raising ch- young children right now, my goodness, anyone who's raised children has a very strong opinion about how to handle newborns, for instance. It's like, are we going to do formula? Or are we going to do breastfeeding? Or are we going to put them on a certain kind of schedule? Or how, how are we going to do their napping? How are we going to do this and that? And listen, are there wise and unwise ways of doing this? Yes. But does the Bible specifically tell us which of these patterns of behavior we have to do in order to obey God? Well, no, it doesn't. We have to love our children. We have to care for them and provide for them. But the danger comes when a mom or dad says, my specific way of doing X, Y, and Z for my child is the only gold standard way to do it. And if you don't do it my way, you're actually violating God's commands. Well, it's like, wait a second. We just jumped from a wisdom call to a you're violating God's law call. And it it actually isn't a violation of God's law if we choose different ways to nap our children in the the day or something like that. So those are just examples. No, that's good. You think we ought to go to 18 and 19? Mysticism. Because we're in a hurry to get to chapter 3. That's what I'm saying. (laughs) Mysticism. Mystical union with God. Five problems they address. False humility, angel worship, fleshly minds not holding to Christ. Right? That's kind of the list. They had a mystical union with God, false humility, angel worship, fleshly minds not holding to Christ. What does all that mean? Scott, what do you you have? I think Mark should start us off. Can you read 18 and 19? Yeah, I'll read 18 and 19. Uh, Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. Let's just walk through this. This is all translations translate this verse slightly differently. It's confusing. Look at verse 18. Let no one disqualify you. Now look back at verse 16. Let no one pass judgment on you. Do you hear a common theme? Don't let anyone judge you. Don't let anyone disqualify you. These are people who are using unbiblical standards to cast you out, to judge you, to to, to disqualify you from something. What is their standard here? Just now it was a legalistic standard. What is this standard? It's, it's called a mysticism. Verse 18, let no one disqualify you, insisting on or delighting in asceticism or humility. This, okay, this is where it gets confusing. <laughs> the word asceticism is not in all translations. But let me tell you what the word means. The word means a severe treatment of your body, like overly fasting, maybe even harming yourself. You know, people walk on glass, they whip themselves, certain monastic ways of dealing with things. You're severely treating your body to try to subdue your sinful nature. And you can see examples of this. You know, people would sit on a pole 30 feet in the air for years at a time, and they would have to feed them up on the pole so that they could escape the world and become more godly. That's a a form of asceticism. It's severe treatment of the body to try to beat your sin, sinful nature. Now, some of your translations just have the word humility there. The word in Greek is literally just the word humility. But Look at verse 23 to show you why we think asceticism is not a bad translation. Verse 23, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism or humility, and look what humility is paired with, severity to the body. Do you see that? Humility or asceticism is paired with, in verse 23, severity to the body. Now, here's why that's important. The, The word humbling there is the word humbling But in biblical language, humbling is often attached to fasting in these kinds of contexts. And when it's linked with severity of the body, it's the kind of humbling that is a bad kind of humbling, a false humility that comes through severe treatment of your body in a way that is not right. So let's keep looking at 18. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, 
going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. Now, some commentators speculate the Colossians may not have said, we are going to go worship some angels now, because that sounds pretty bad. Very likely they used language other than worship, but the function was worship. And I'm not, not trying to just beat up here, but just to be honest, I have known numerous Catholics, uh, talked to numerous intelligent Catholics in my life. When, when I talk to them, they will say, we do not worship the saints. We do not worship dead popes. We do not worship Mary. We simply venerate her. But then when you look at what they actually do, you bow down, you pray to her, you rely on her extra merit, and you call her a co-redeemer with Jesus. Sounds like worship, even if you don't call it worship. Similarly with these angels, they may not have been saying, we're going to worship angels. Maybe they were, but I doubt it was that direct. But in function, they were elevating the angelic sphere to a place that only is reserved for Christ. They were looking for extra strength or extra vision or extra something from the angelic world that was only to be found in Christ, much like praying to saints or something like that. And so Paul here uh, is condemning that. Let me me say a word here about what mysticism uh, may look like. John MacArthur puts it like this. Mysticism is a deeper, higher religious experience. That's what they call it. A deeper, higher religious, religious experience based on personal intuition like your instinct about what feels right. So it's, it's deeper, higher religious experience based on personal intuition. Here's, here's where mysticism goes really in a wrong direction. It's trying to discover spiritual truth based on your feelings and your experience. Now listen, let, let, me, let me read this. Mysticism is, desi- is deciding what is true about God, reality, eternity, ourselves, angels, and demons based on our mysticism and emotional experiences rather than on God's revealed word. Okay, so are we against spiritual experiences? Well, it depends on what you mean, right? If we mean having our affections deeply stirred by the gospel, I am all for that. In fact, I don't know what Christianity is if you don't have that. You've got to have uh, joy in the Lord. You've got to have peace from the Lord. You've got to have the Holy Spirit working in your life. I'm all for that kind of spiritual experiences of the Holy Spirit. But Those experiences don't determine theological truth. They are the result of understanding theological truth. Do you see how the direction matters? Truth starts in the mind. God presents truth to our mind, and then the mind is moved by the Spirit, and it moves down into the affections, and it stirs the heart. But if you start with the emotions first, the heart is beautiful above all things. If you start with your feelings and your experience, you will be led astray 100 times out of 100. But if you start with the Bible informing your mind theologically and you let the theology of God's word to tunnel into your heart and change your affections, you can have wonderful spiritual experiences that are biblical and from God. But if you let your emotions and experiences and your mystical experiences try to tell you what's real about angels and eternity and heaven, you're in big trouble. And I'm almost done with this point, but I've got a whole stack of terrible books on this subject. Heaven, you know, heaven is for real, 90 minutes in heaven, the Kennedy, God's story of grace, and this crazy one, proof of heaven. These are all stories where people are claiming to have experiences and the experience tells you what's true. No, you got the whole thing backwards. You don't have an experience and then figure out what heaven is like. You read this book. This book is not only infallible and inerrant, it's true in what it says. It's also sufficient for all we need for life and godliness. If you want to learn about heaven, I can tell you a lot of places in here you can look all day long and learn everything you need to know about heaven and hell is in this book. You don't need to hear... uh, Todd Burpo's explanation or Alex Malarkey's explanation of what heaven is like. And by the way, Alex Malarkey, 
I mean, you can't make this up. Malarkey was the name of the author who wrote the book about the child's gone to heaven. And this is a tragic part of the story. The child was in a terrible car accident, uh, Alex Malarkey. He was paralyzed. He's still paralyzed, permanently paralyzed. And they interviewed him years after the book had come out. It had sold hundreds of thousands of copies, I believe. It was one of Lifeway's bestsellers. Like, Lifeway, what are you guys doing, publishers? Come on, take that stuff off the shelf. But uh, Alex Malarkey, the child in the wheelchair, came out uh, years after the book came out, and he said, in fact, I've, let me, I've got the quote right here. Let me, let, me, uh, let me get the wording right. He admitted this right here. Please forgive the brevity, but because of my limitations, I have to keep this short. I did not die. I did not go to heaven. I said I went to heaven because I thought it would get me attention. When I made the claims that I did, I never read the Bible. People have profited from lies and continue to. They should read the Bible, which is enough. The Bible is the only source of truth. Anything written by man cannot be infallible. It is only through repentance of your sins and belief in Jesus as the Son of God who died for your sins that you can be forgiven and learn about heaven outside, uh, that you can learn about heaven. And so he, he publicly said, listen, guys, I made a terrible mistake. Please forgive me, is what this poor child said. And I, he may have been pressured by his dad. But the point is, mysticism is something to run away from at all costs. Also, I think it's important in light of that to, to stress, there's two examples in the New Testament of men who had heavenly visions and heavenly experiences, the Apostle Paul and the Apostle John. Paul talks about his in uh, 2 Corinthians, and he talks, you know, he's kind of, he's refuting the, the false super apostles, and he talks a little weird. He's like, I know a guy who went to the third heaven. He speaks in the third person, and great things were shown him, but then he wasn't allowed to talk about it. God said, you saw a lot of things in the third heaven, in paradise, where, where God dwells. And, and, and God told him, do not talk about it. Don't share it. Don't say a thing. Okay, Paul went there, had a real experience of heaven, and couldn't. God told him, you can't share it. Number two, the apostle John, with the book of Revelation, John was an apostle, specifically commissioned by God to write the word of God, to preach the gospel, to instruct the church, and guess what? There are no more apostles. So the only apostle who had visions of heaven and was called up there, come up here and, and see, guess what? He was commissioned by God to report what he saw for the good of the church. There are no more apostles. God's revelation, scriptural revelation is complete. There is no more. Everything we need, we have in scripture. Okay? And so... If anybody says, but it was so real, and, and are you going to call people a liar? Just, I mean, you can say, one, there's two people in the Bible. One, God told him not to talk about it. Uh, he was an apostle, and God told him to be quiet. Number two, the other guy was an apostle, and he was writing Scripture. You aren't going to be writing Scripture. None of us are. Our deal is to interpret what God has already given. And so just use that to, to push back on people because... Keep in mind, like, because I, I, I see this with my students, but Mr. Rents, like, you know, it's, it's, they, it's, it's, it's fantastic, it's, it's exciting, it's thrilling. Somebody, they saw Jesus, they say, and Jesus, you know, walked with them and, and, and said, hey, everything's going to be okay. Listen, Scripture alone reveals heaven to us. And it doesn't matter how sincere, how sweet, how you know, nice the person is. The only vision of heaven that we are bound to believe and obey is what's in Scripture. Everything else is suspect. Everything else is suspect. 
Just remember that and pray for a lot of grace to point people to the truth because it has a powerful pull on the heart, stories like this. Scott, anything? Yeah, I mean, I think the key is in verse 19. It says, and not holding fast uh-huh. to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with the growth that is from God. They, they were disconnected from the effective source of spiritual growth. They were not connected to Christ. And I think the big takeaway, which I, I've taken away from multiple of, the, of our sessions, is we got to keep clinging to Christ. Like, we got to, no matter how fancy this story is that someone's telling, we want to keep clinging, stay close to Christ, and like Mark's saying, cling to the Word. Like, this is where, where it is. You just see through the, like people, somebody said, People say, God told me this, God told me that, God told me that, and talk about all the problems that that causes. It's just like, how can you even substantiate it? Again, we come back to the Word of God. We come back clinging to Christ. Don't let it, the fanciness of it push, push you away from it. And let me just quote I, one of the best-selling. This is a book written by a woman to women. Uh, it's one of the best-sellers of the last 10 years. Listen to what she wrote in her original introduction to this book. She said, these are direct words from her original introduction, which she later changed because she got in trouble for it. But here's what she said. Quote, I began to wonder if I too could receive messages during my times of communing with God, if she could re- receive messages straight from God. This is called mysticism, okay? And then she says, I had been writing in prayer journals for years, but that was one-way communication, her, her talking to God. I did all the talking. I knew that God communicated with me through the Bible. Listen to this sentence. I knew that God communicated with me through the Bible, but I yearned for more. Red flag. Like, as soon as someone says, the Bible's great, but I need a little bit extra on the side. That's the Colossian heresy. Jesus and the Bible's not enough. I need to sprinkle something on the side, a little mystical experience on the side. So what does she say? Increasingly, I wanted to hear what God had to say to me personally on a given day. This is bad. I decided to listen to God with pen in hand, writing down whatever I believe he was saying. I felt awkward the first time I tried this, but I received a message. Uh, who did it come from? Uh, It was short, biblical, and appropriate. It addressed topics that were current in my life, trust, fear, and closeness to God. I responded by writing in my prayer journal, and uh, Sarah Young has made a lot of money off of that particular book. And Mark buys those books at Goodwill and throws them directly away. (laughs) So if you can't find them there, he might be the problem. It has happened. Yeah. 20 to 23, there's Scott on asceticism here. I can read it again. Uh, I'll read 20 to 23. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Maybe, Jerry, you start us on this one, maybe. That last part gets me. You know, they just are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And Scott, like you reminded us, we've got to go back to Christ. He's the only one that can help us with our uh, sin issues because certainly none of these things are going to do it. Yes. Let me, Sinclair Ferguson, I'm just going to give you some questions. You probably won't have time to write them down, but just try to listen to these. These are some questions to ask as you listen to teachers, Bible teachers. These are helpful. So number one, First list is three questions. Who is really being esteemed or lifted up in in the teaching? Who is really being esteemed or lifted up? Is it the teacher himself or herself? Is it some experience that they've had that's the main focus of attention? Or is the focus on Jesus in his word? Is is that the focus of attention? Who's being esteemed? Number two, what is he not saying? What is the teacher not saying? 
So a teacher may say 99 true things in a book, and yet the, they may leave out something so essential to Jesus and the gospel that they've actually mischaracterized the whole of sanctification because they've left something vital out. They could say a lot of true things. So just, just uh, helpful tips for how to live a, a certain kind of life without a connection to Jesus and the gospel is going to fail us. It's going to fail us because it, it's like trying to give people train tracks without giving them an engine. Like, okay, the law, t- tips and life advice is great. You got the train tracks. You need to live here. You need to go here. You need to do this. That's great. I'm a gigantic train. I got no energy. I've got no fuel. I've got nothing, no engine to push me forward. And if, until the tracks and the train are connected, because until the gospel is connected to the law, until Jesus is the fuel of my obedience, it's no different than worldly obedience. Uh, and, and so uh, St. Clair says, what is the effect of the teaching? Does it puff us up like it does here? They're puffed up. Or does it build up the church? Does it actually lead to edification and fruitfulness? I think another thing from verse 23, there of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Paul talks about this in Romans and other places too. You, you can't overcome sin just by trying to grit out obedience. You know, we know the law says, do this, do this, do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. And we think, okay, I'm, I'm just going to overcome sin. It says don't do it, I'm not going to do it. You can only do that for so long before you fall flat on your face in the dirt and are miserable. You cannot grit out obedience to God. You just can't do it. You need God's help. I need God's help. And the problem with so much of this is, is again, what does it say? Uh, regulations, don't do this. Don't, it's do not, do not, do not. And it's like, I mean, it could, there could be some wisdom in not doing these things, but if you think that you're going to overcome sinful desires by just clinging to the law, you are sunk. Like, you, we cannot walk in obedience. We cannot overcome sinful indulgence, like this, this indulgence of the flesh, because you can know the right thing to do and still desire the opposite. That's the problem we all face, is we still want what we shouldn't want. And simply clinging to the law, law says don't do it. Okay, don't do it. Your desire to do it is going to eventually win out because that's how sin works. That's why I say we can't do this on our own because the law, any law, does not have the power in and of itself to empower obedience. It simply shows us what we should do and eventually don't do. This is why he keeps pointing us back to Christ and saying the substance is in Christ, meaning like the strength to obey, the strength to resist temptation, the strength to do what's right, the strength to acknowledge I desire something that I shouldn't desire, but I have resources in Christ that are going to help me not feed that desire. Like if, if we're left to ourselves, we are hopeless, but in Christ, the substance, we have everything we need. And like that's what we have to come back to. Like, and I can say this from personal experience, you can know a hundred things you shouldn't do, but you will eventually fail unless you are turning to Christ and seeing strength in Christ and praying in that moment, Lord, I really want to do something I shouldn't do. Help me not to do it. Help me not to do it. And you're leaning when, where, or, or, or what are you doing in that moment? You're leaning into Christ who has all the resources for you to say no to that sin, to resist that sin. Because if you resist long enough, you will escape that. Like that's the thing, 1 Corinthians, God provides the way of escape. There is a way out of temptation. 
whether it's, it's something big, whether it's something that only you know about, there is a way out. And it's in Christ through the truth. And you stick to that and you cling to Christ and you focus on Christ and he will bring relief. And it's interesting, Greg, on that point. If I am trying to obey without the gospel and Christ as the fuel for my obedience, then I've got two options. One is I trick myself into thinking I'm doing a pretty good job. And then how do I treat everyone around me who's not? I treat them like dirt, right? I mean, just, just random illustration. College student, uh, not really Christian, but they're trying to, trying, to, trying to be not promiscuous, trying to be like pure, right? They're just doing it in their own strength. They have a bunch of friends who are promiscuous. How do they feel towards those people? Look down on them with absolute disdain, right? Because I'm pulling myself together. Why can't you? The other alternative is they fall into promiscuity. They sin. And then, then they just feel completely crushed. They feel absolutely despairing. So you either think you succeed and you're proud or you fail and you feel like dirt. You feel like you're absolutely unloved. Only the gospel can allow us to actually begin to obey without feeling superior to others. That's a, that's a miracle. To actually be beginning to make progress in real holiness and show nothing but compassion toward those who are failing, that is where you know the Holy Spirit is, is at work. It's, yeah, that's really good, Scott. Two, two quick things, just, to the, just tying in exactly with what you're saying. One guy, one pastor prayed at the end of his sermon for his people that they would be satisfied with Jesus, the fountain of living waters, be content to drink of him. And another commentator said, basically a prayer, keep us right at the foot of the cross, simply drinking long and deep from the fountain. And I think, again, that's, again, we're coming back to that, but that is so, that's going to empower obedience and everything else. Not all these things that are surface level that don't get to the root. We, we come back and we cling to the cross. There's the power. Yeah. Can we read uh, 1 to 4 then yet in chapter 3? Because... Uh, the, the chapter break is there, but I'd like to hear you, your guys' um, input on, you know, why, what's the connection here? If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. So he goes the other way. Make the connection there for us. Yeah, I can, just, I can just start it out. Uh, one pastor, uh, Scottish pastor, he said, in the New Testament, true Christian living is not simply a piece of moral advice which the apostles hand out to us. True Christian living in the New Testament is always the outcome and consequence of a true work of grace that has been done within us. So it's, it's because of this, almost like people said that it can be translated since. It's almost, that's the idea I think Ferguson said. You could almost push it that since you've been raised with Christ, since this is true of you, since you are united to Christ, since you've been forgiven your sins now, this naturally flows. We need to live a, a different way. Some, somebody said, like, you can tell someone who's older who's acting childish, and they'll say, act your age. Or Derek Thomas told a story of when he was younger, he did something foolish when he was a teenager, and his older brother took him aside and said, like, you're not acting like a Thomas. He said he, like, grabbed him up against the wall. I mean, that idea. Uh, but how much more for us as Christians? Now that we've been raised, raised with Christ, how much differently we, sh- we should be acting? And uh, this is what Ferguson said. He said, we need to remember who and whose we are. He said, if you are a believer, you are someone who has been chosen in grace, loved by the Father before you were born. You are not your own. You've been bought with a price, the sacrifice of Christ. You are his, so live for his glory. I mean, this is the most important thing about you is you have been bought with a price, so now live. Naturally, it just flows. We want to live for his glory. We want to set our minds on things above him. We just should naturally flow out of this reality, this incredible reality. Good, Greg. Yeah, Paul here is picking up on a thought that he'd already mentioned in chapter 2, verse 12, uh, which they uh, dealt with uh, last week, uh, the previous passage. But look again at chapter 2, verse 12. It says, We've been buried, and notice with the language here, buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised 
him from the dead. And then chapter 3, verse 1, if you have been raised with Christ, raised with him, raised with Christ. He's coming back to that thought because we need to remember, we, we've already said this multiple times, all that we need is in Christ, but also we have new spiritual life. Mark talked about uh, the, the circumcision of heart, uh, which is the same thing as regeneration, the same thing as being born again. Um, when we trust in Christ, as far as our experience is concerned, we are experiencing new life. Like we used to not care about Jesus. Now we care about him. The Bible used to be boring. Now it's life and we got to have it. The church used to be something that we yawn at. Now we want the church. We want the fellowship and other things as well. Um, so in what Paul's saying is, look, you've been raised with Christ. There's this whole doctrine of union with Christ. We've talked about before when we believe we're united to Christ so that his life, spiritual life, flows into us. And I mean, this is a real thing. It's not just a, a concept out there in space. Like, if you're a believer, you, your new spiritual life is fueled by Christ, who is in heaven for you. And where he's at is actually important, because where does the, Paul say Christ is? He's seated at the right hand of God. So if we want to talk about, you know, following Jesus, you know, that's a, that's a big term that's out there, you know, let's follow Jesus. And I've even heard some people try to be, you know, extra spiritual and say, well, I don't call myself a Christian. I call myself a follower of Jesus. Well, I mean, what, what does that even mean? Uh, let's root it in the text. If we're going to seek Jesus and follow Jesus, well, we got to know where is Jesus. Jesus is in heaven at the right hand of God. So that affects our whole understanding of how we relate to Jesus. He's not mystically walking around out there and we got to try to figure out, you know, which way is Jesus going? Um, no, we know where Jesus is. He's in heaven at God's right hand. He sent the Holy Spirit down. He works in us by the Spirit uh, everywhere we go. And so we seek Christ by what? By reading the Word. Because that's how He speaks to us from heaven, through the Word. We seek Christ in prayer. Okay, it's, it's, we make this almost, you know, because you've, you've heard the statement before, maybe you've heard this, you know, when it comes to like, you know, wanting to, to be where God's at work. Well, I just try to figure out where God's, you know, where Jesus is working and that's where I want to go. No, Jesus is working through the word by the spirit. And when we come to him and commune with him in prayer, like that's where we meet Jesus. We don't have to go out into the world and try to figure out what Jesus is doing. We already know what he's doing He's working through the Spirit, through the Word, to shape and form His people. And then as we go out, He's working through us to spread the gospel. I mean, and, and again, there's a whole lot more I could say on that. But where, where is Jesus right now? He's at the right hand of God. It's not hard to find Him if you're a believer. We know where He is. We pray in His name, and we have access. It's not complicated. Hebrews 12, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. Good. Anything for closing, you guys? You said you wanted to make a couple comments about 3, 1 through 4. Well, it certainly is one of my favorites, I think, in just um, the, the idea of thinking with an eternal perspective and how much that changes everything. Having our eyes on Jesus, having our minds, having our, um, our intellect to be constantly thinking about that. So many advantages um, to live in that way, and uh, tons more to say on that, but our light momentary troubles are achieving for us this eternal glory that far outweighs them all, so we fix our eyes not on what's seen, but on what's unseen, and that's what we're talking about here, 
what seems temporary, what's unseen is eternal. Um, but to be hidden with Christ, what a tremendous privilege that we have. And now we can see things in a whole different manner, so much more encouraging to think about things that are above than to watch the news and just say, oh man, we're in trouble. We have, uh, we have a lot to look forward to. It seems like there, there is a... I want to be careful here again. Of course, I'm not, in one, I'm not at all minimizing God's law. We are absolutely... Holiness is obeying Jesus. That's what, that's what it is. Following, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. But I also don't want us to get... It's kind of like if, if we're looking at things, Jesus needs to be the primary object of our affection. We're looking at Christ. Verses 1 through 4, it's all about setting our mind and our affections on things above. And then look at verse 5, there's a turn, put to death therefore what is earthly in you, and then it's a list of sin. So it's got to be connected to the sight. The beauty of Jesus leads to the transformation of our life. It's not just working hard by rules left to ourselves. It's seeing Jesus and then being, being transformed. One, one last thing before, uh, which Jerry won't like what I'm about to say, but uh, I'll try to squeeze it out. One, one commentary said the conversations of believers with, another, with one another ought to stimulate us to seek the things that are above. They ought to encourage us to think about heavenly things. And certainly this guy at the end of the table has helped all of us at our church help us get excited about heaven, help us to set our minds on things above. I mean, I don't know anybody, Jerry, who's so consistently, like how genuinely excited you are. And uh, I can't even make it, but just really thankful that you have helped us do Colossians 3, 1 to 4. So really thank you. Thanks. Greg, would you close this? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you uh, for all that you have given us in our Savior. Lord, help us never go anywhere but to him for what we need to know you, to follow you, to walk with you, to live for you, to fight sin, to, and anything else that, that we face in life. Everything we need is in Christ. And so, Lord, even as we just started considering, help us to set our minds on the things that are above and to seek the things that are above. Every good gift, everything we need, you have ready for us in Christ. And so, Lord, help us seek him the way we should. Help us, Lord, to receive your word um, and all that you share with us in your word. It is our food. It is our life. It is our sword um, and so many other amazing things. Lord, uh, thank you for tonight, and thank you for all that we've been able to consider. And please, God, help us to guard our hearts against legalism, against mysticism, and against asceticism, uh, Lord, because not only do these things not save, Lord, even as believers, they don't get us any further with you. All that we need, we have in Christ. And so help us lean ever more into him. Lord, please help us in our discussions to be an encouragement to one another, to learn from one another, help us speak truth clearly. And uh, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So just in about three minutes, we'll have leaders at the different tables and we'll walk through uh, these questions together.